cloud and it's recording now. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the latest of Practico's Costs Chat Between Friends. It's just over a year now since we had a cost chat actually in person with the bacon sandwich and all that in um, the Devonshire Club near Andy's work. And uh, I know the date precisely because that's the last time I was in the UK. For those of you who don't know, I live in Italy and haven't been able to travel to the UK for that time. So all the cast chats we've had in the meantime, of which this is probably the sixth or seventh, have been virtual ones. And they've gone, I think, quite well, given the, the technical problems that would otherwise be there. But in order to celebrate the little over an anniversary, a little over a year anniversary since um, the beginning of lockdown, at least here and to some extent also in the UK, we're going to conclude with a little discussion, a chat about how it's been for all of you during lockdown trying to work um, remotely. But in the meantime, we've got some, um, sorry, I haven't introduced the participants, who the friends are. The friends are Andrew Post QC, um, leading cost council, and Andrew Ellis, who's the managing director of Practico, and I'm Jeremy Morgan, retired cost council and consultant to Practico. I have to say, Andrew and I really are friends. We, I think I probably set him on the, um, the road towards uh, becoming an expert in, in costs when we were in chambers together very long time ago. Um, uh, all true, all true. It really is Jeremy's fault. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Jer Jeremy is the, Jeremy is the person who came into my room and said, "I've got this. I've got this thing. What's a judge going to say?" And I sort of say, "I've no idea." But he kept on coming in and asking these questions. Um, and after a bit, I started to get a feel for this this esoteric world. And there you are. And look where he is now. Um, the Court of Appeals has been very kind to us and given us a decision last Friday, which we will talk a little bit about, which is about whether um, litigation funding agreements are DBAs. Before that, probably we're going to start with the, the more important uh, issue of DBAs and whether you can have hybrid ones and what happens if you have a uh, provision in the agreement whereby the solicitor gets paid if the client terminates the agreement. Um, and after that, we'll have a quick trot over a couple of other th um, things. The first, which is um, opt-in funding in group litigation and how that's going to pan out in the light of the recent Supreme Court decision and the possibility of partial relief from sanctions, whether that is something that's going to take off. And then finally, we'll have a chat about how things have been during this period of lockdown. So if I may, I'd like to ask Andrew to kick off with the recent case uh, of LexLaw. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Right, um, well, LexLaw is the um, cost excitement of 2021 so far. Um, and it is, um, it, it, it grapples uh, for uh, the first time, the Court of Appeal for the first time, with this difficult question, or this what, what we all thought was probably rather a difficult question, as to what uh, the effect is uh, where a, a DBA uh, is worded um, in such a way uh, that as well as there being a share of the spoils, uh, there is also a provision 
whereby the uh, solicitor will be entitled to, to get their costs on an, on an hourly rate basis um, if the client terminates the agreement before success is achieved. The underlying difficulty with DBAs is, of course, the same as the underlying difficulty with the, with, with the enforceability of CFAs that led to the cost wars. And that is the basic model of the approach um, that um, Treasury Council took, oh, I'm sorry, not Treasury, uh, that uh, Parliamentary Council took when drafting the law, the, 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 the act and the regulations in the first place. And the approach that was taken was to say that DBR, DBAs are unlawful unless they comply with the act and with the regulations. And that, of course, as I say, is the same model that was the CFA model. Um, and the way it was put in um, the Lex Law case is what that means is that lawful DBAs are islands of lawfulness in a sea of illegality, uh, which is nice, 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 colourful way of putting it. Um, but what um, that um, has meant uh, is that uh, the uh, process of uh, actually ensuring that a DBA is in fact enforceable is quite a difficult one. And the fundamental difficulty uh, is Regulation 4 of the 2003 DBA regulations, um, which provides that in respect... Uh, did I not say 2013? You said 2003, so 2013. I'm so sorry. I'm entirely behind the times. I'm, I obviously <laughs> mean the 2013 regs, but there were no 2003 regs. I apologise. Thank you, Jerry. Um, and it's Reg 4, sub-Reg 1. In respect of any claim or proceedings other than an employment matter, a damage, damages-based agreement must not require an amount to be paid by the client other than the payment. And the payment is defined elsewhere as the share of the spoils. Um, the DBA in the Lex Law, or Lex Law's DBA, uh, provided that as well as the share of the spoils, if the DBA is terminated, entitled to their, to their costs. And on the face of it, therefore, the DBA, in breach of Regulation 4 uh, provides for a payment other than the share of the spoils. Uh, Court of Appeal, it was pretty clear from the judgments, didn't want DBAs to fall. There was clearly a policy interest in DBAs being found to be lawful. Um, and um, yeah, that's apparent from all three of the judgments. It's a court of three. Uh, Lord Justice Lewison, Lord Justice Newey, and Lord Justice Coulson. First judgment is given by Lewison, and his solution to this problem is to say, well, what is the DBA? The DBA is the sharing of the spoils agreement. It is the agreement as to what the share is of the recoveries. It goes to, goes to the solicitor, and what's the share that goes to the, um, the, 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 the goes to the client? Uh, any other provisions may be part of the retainer, they may even be in the same document, but they're not strictly part of the DBA. Uh, and therefore, uh, Regulation 4 doesn't bite 
on a payment in circumstances where the solicitor ends the retainer um, and, I'm sorry, where the client ends the retainer and is therefore liable to pay the solicitor. Um, and that, therefore, gets around this difficulty of the apparent breach of regulation four. The problem with that is that if the, the, the regulated bit of the agreement is just the share of the spoils, then anything else agreed between solicitor and client is not regulated, or at least it's not regulated by the DBA regs. Um, and the effect of that um, is that not only can the solicitor charge the client if the, if the client terminates the agreement, but also um, the solicitor, there's nothing to, on the face of the regulations to stop the solicitor charging the client uh, full hourly rates, as well as a share of the spoils. Second judge, Lord Justice Newey, raised that and says, this does not look, this does not seem to me to be satisfactory. It does not seem to me that the point of the um, regulations is to allow the solicitor to recover his hourly rate and a share of the spoils. Um, and uh, therefore, at, um, his approach is a, is a different one. He says that as a matter of construction, although the DBA does encompass the whole agreement, payments on termination are, as a matter of construction, outside the scope of Section Four of Regulation Four, uh, and therefore no breach. Uh, the third judge is Lord Justice Coulson, who we know is particularly interested in cost matters. Uh, and what he does is he broadly agrees with both of his brethren. So he agrees with unhelpfully. It's uh, often the case with a three, often the case with a with a with a three judge court. He agrees with both. Um, so therefore, there is a majority for the proposition that all that a deep or the only regulated bit of a DBA is the bit that shares out the spoils. That the DBA regulations do not apply to other provisions, um, and that's one of the interesting things we're going to have to think about, and I'd be interested to hear what you both think about whether, by effectively a side wind, um, the decision in Lex Law has meant that all forms of hybrid DBAs are now lawful. Um, because if it is only um, uh, the bit of the share of the spoils, then the only restriction is what share of the spoils you can have. And on the face of it, you can indeed say, "I would like um, full hourly rates, and I would also like success. I, I would also like a, a share of the spoils as a effectively a success fee." Um, now, that's obviously um, a, a slightly disconcerting, a slightly disconcerting prospect, um, and I shall be, be interested to, to see see what you will think about it. Uh, why did this happen? Answer: Because. All three judges absolutely clearly um, read the regulation purposefully. It is absolutely clear from all three judgments that they take the view that the intention of Parliament was to render DBAs lawful um, and that they were determined, therefore, to make them enforceable. And they didn't see why something as anodyne as letting the solicitor be paid in the event that the client terminates reasonably, didn't see why those uh, that should prevent DBAs being enforceable. The problem is 
that because of the underlying approach of saying everything's unlawful unless it precisely accords with the regulations and the act, that's quite a difficult thing to do. Um, and um, to my mind, uh, there's been quite a heavily purposive reading of the regulations in order to achieve that. But it's very difficult, isn't it, Andrew, when you have two judges, one says one thing, the second one is really quite rude about the first one's judgment, to the point where the first one adds an addendum to his to say, well, I'd just like to respond to um, Lord Justice Newey on, on this. He's, this is my answer to his, his objections. And the third judge says, well, I agree with both of them. So you've got two judges who, you know, patently don't agree. And the third one says, well, I agree with you both. Where, where does that leave us? I, I think you're probably right. Technically, it does leave a majority in favour of the Lewison solution, which would enable you to do what uh, you've just suggested, which is to say, all right, I'll have, I'll have all my costs and my expenses, and I'll have a piece of the action on top. But I, I don't see that an equally purposive approach somewhere down the line wouldn't stop that. Quite how it's achieved, I don't know. Well, well, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. Well, I should be able to turn to Andy, but I mean, but basically, I agree with that, Jerry. Andy, what do you think? Well, um, I agree with both of you. It's <laughs> 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 obviously a very, very, uh, very fashionable way to present it. Uh, I mean, I'm troubled by it. I mean, because you know, it's not our job to say whether we think it's a good decision or not. Because once the Court of Appeal have, have made a decision, that should be it. But it makes me wonder whether it's not really going to be clear in people's minds and be taken clearly into practice risk-free until the regulations get tightened up in one way or another or another um so it seems to me that there's a lot left out there um because of exactly what you say um there's one there is one thing to say let's take a purposive interpretation of this because we know that Parliament wanted to bring these in um, and that they were supposed to work and they shouldn't be tripped up on technicalities like um, that, that may have not been foreseen at the time like termination uh, agreements that's a you know that's a very benign end of it to, to something which is riding a coach and horses through every sort of principle of cost that we've been brought up with in many respects which is to say that um, uh, if you're going to have one of these uh, statutory forms of retainer that enable you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise want to do. It's got to be within pretty tight timelines and not something that you can just bolt on to another form of retainer. Um, and so therefore, I, I'm turning around to, you know, the way that they're here am I, who am I, but I'm criticising that decision in terms of the way it's delivered. And I, I, I wouldn't imagine that I think greater brains than I would find a way to nevertheless argue that to proceed on a um, cake and eat it basis for example if somebody tried to do that that that, that wouldn't be uh, that wouldn't have been overreaching in some shape or form. I think one thing we can say but just to, in case people are worried about the uncertainty this decision creates is that where you have uh, if I can call it a, a conventional DBA which does have a termination provision I mean you've got here three court of appeal judges all saying that's fine Absolutely. So I don't think people need worry about entering into an agreement like that, but it's if they try and push it, uh, push the envelope in the way that Lord Justice uh, Lewison perhaps has suge suggested, then they might get into difficulty if they go too far. Yeah, I, I might, yeah no, I agree, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think it is very, I think the courts will find a way 
to stop the cake and cake and eat it situa- situation being being lawful. Um, but I think there is a scope for there being quite a lot of litigation about that. Um, I think that the intent that the the difficulty that the, that the three judges are trying to address of the quite straightforward payment in the event of termination, I think that that we that that we're now clear on. Um, and that is now, and that is now enforceable, and that's a good thing because you know, it's absurd to have a, a scheme whereby DBAs are in theory lawful but in practice unusable. I mean that was that was hopeless. Um, the slight bad news is that I think the view of the government will now be the view of the NOJ will now be the problems are solved. We do not need. Uh, reform of the DBA regulations because it's all being resolved. And the, the big issue which has um, led people to, to um, seek uh, reform of the DBA regulations it was probably rather less this point, although to some extent it was there, but also the point of whether you can have a, a hybrid, con- what's called a concurrent hybrid DBA in this decision, which is one where if you win, you get your, you know, your share of the proceeds. But if you lose, the, the, the client still pays you something, but a lot less, a reduced uh, Absolutely, yeah. To, in yeah. order to, to spread the risk a bit more and to make the, the arrangement more attractive to solicitors. And that one seems to be well, up uh, in the air. Would that be right, Andrew? Uh, that's my view. I think it's thoroughly up in the air. And I think I'm far from clear whether that would, that would, that, that form, uh, the, I think a consecutive hybrid is fine. But I think a concurrent hybrid may well not be fine on the basis, reading as a whole those three judgments, reading the, um, the, the judgment of Newry, who doesn't like hybrids, that's pretty clear, doesn't, and certainly doesn't like concurrent hybrids. Um, and um, therefore, I, you know, I have, I have some doubt about that. So now, how, what about people? Sorry. How would a consecutive... Um, how would consecutive agreements work in practice? What would be a, an example of, of one, a sort of scenario that would be consecutive? Oh, you can do. You can have certain stages, certain stages covered covered by one form of funding, and then the next stage ca- covered by a DBA. Yeah, yeah, sure. exactly. Which um, which I can see it's going to be attractive actually to quite a lot of SMEs, for example, who don't really who, who you know. Let's see if we can get an early settlement. Um, if we can get an early settlement, we can pay you for it without losing a share of the pot. Yes. Um, and I, so actually, I think um, consecutive um, DBAs are, you know, are a realistic prospect. Yeah. Well, the other way might be a conventional, I mean, for the same sort of client, a conventional retainer um, to investigate the claim and advise on the merits um, and possibly get it off the ground. But then as soon as things start getting a bit heavier in terms of costs, switch over to uh, a, a DBA. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes what sense. about, um, as a practical question, somebody who's very, very conservative, a solicitor who's very conservative, has got a very carefully drawn up DBA, which doesn't entitle the firm to be paid in the event of the client terminating the agreement because they, they were worried about this particular point. Would they be able to amend their agreement now to put in a clause like this? I mean, generally speaking, anyone, provided the parties agree, can amend a contract to do more or less anything, can't they? Um, they but it's this whole difficulty of informed consent. 
Yeah. Well, informed and consideration, I suppose, there, because the, the client... And, consider there, and you, consideration, too. You'll start with that one, mate. Sorry. Exactly, yeah. yeah exactly. What's changed? Yeah. I think, the, you know, how do, how do I get a benefit out of that client says... Well, right, right. Yeah. You'd have to change the um, consideration. Yes. The, the, you'd have to change the consideration. You'd have to... There'd have to be something in it for the client. Yeah. Yes. I reduce, slightly take the edge off the percentage of yeah. damages that you're going to receive as a result, something like that. But then, as you say, you've still yeah. got to deal with informed consent. Yeah. And you've still got to deal with informed consent. Yeah. I mean, that was certainly, in the very early days of DBAs, that was something that I remember um, concerned some clients of ours. In fact, they said, we've signed up our first DBA. I said, oh, yeah, we're good. Is it, you know, how did it go? We were so worried about it that we videoed the client care interview. <laughs> the client could never deny that we'd actually had this conversation, which went along the lines. So if I phone up your opponent next week and they cave and they give you X, you're still going to give us Y, yeah? That was their concern. Well, I mean, look, as a, as a client, piece of client clarity advice, it's not entirely stupid, is it? I mean, that's a lot of... <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think they're very wise. But I mean, I think that the whole of this is that I'm not so sure now that whether I don't get the impression that there's actually a pent up demand from solicitors to enter into DBAs. I think it's been such a I think it, it's been such a, um, a cautious approach to that so far that I'm, you know, I'm not actually sure that this is going to signal liftoff in any way just from a practical level of whether that's the way solicitors are going to want to enter into agreements. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I think I think that the DBAs have been there, but not there for so many years now. Um, the, the solicitors aren't very interested. Clients have had them explain to them two or three times, but then told, but it doesn't really work. Um, and anyway, clients aren't particularly keen on losing a share of the spoils. Um, there's, you know, there's there's a um, a certain um, sort of solicitor who, who who thinks that for a certain sort of case, this is tremendously exciting and attractive. Um, but usually their clients smell a rat and um, run a mile from that, from that sort of approach. Yeah, exactly. Do you think we can now expect um, precedents from the Law Society and the, the Bar Council? They've been very reluctant to uh, commit themselves to writing so far. I would have thought so. But I think they're going to be quite limited to the sort of situation we were talking about a little earlier, which is to say the straightforward DBA, which merely provides for a share of spoils plus basic costs in the in the event of termination by the client. I don't think we're going to get a sophisticated a set of sophisticated uh, precedents uh, dealing with either consecutive or concurrent DBAs. Which is a shame because I think, insofar as people want things, those are the things that are a great deal more useful than a completely conventional DBA. Uh, than a or, well, the, the, what's about to become a conventional DBA involving only a share of the files plus um, plus uh, pay, pay in the event of, 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 of uh, termination. Well, um, still on DBAs, um, we do have this decision of the Court of Appeal and the Divisional Court same people sitting in two different capacities um, last Friday um, on whether yes. a litigation funding agreement is a DBA. 
And it's, uh, you know, where's the headline? The answer is it isn't. <laughs> no one no one really thought it was. Um, in a, uh, I know the next topic we're going to deal with is um, police class actions, which are, which are finally, five years after they became lawful, finally about to start happening, or at least start being fought. Um, and what's so interesting about them is they are worth so much money that it's worth taking almost any point. Um, and this is a classic example of exactly that. I can't imagine that the truck companies really thought they had much prospect of successfully persuading a court um, that anyone who um, funds litigation is in fact entering into a DBA. Um, but if it succeeded, it was marvellous in, in, in business terms for the truck company. So it was worth taking the point. Uh, and so they took the point. Um, and they decided, unsurprisingly, it wasn't. Um, it's more of the same badly worded regulations that we were talking about earlier. Um, and um, the three judges in um, in Lex Law sort of sort of say, well, it's not our fault that we don't agree. At one point, they sort of say it's not our fault we don't agree with each other. It's because the the, the, the regulations are so badly worded um, that we need we all need to say something different to each. You know, we all need to set out our individual thought process. Um, and um, again, it's that, it's those same bad regulations that mean this point was even slightly arguable. Anyway, well, it's good that it's out of the way. I'm sure, um, I remember actually discussing the point with the Litigation Funders Association when, the, um, when LASPO was going through and saying, look, there is this risk because the wording is not good. Um, why don't you have a word with the government and try and get them to, uh, to make it clear? Um, so they had a word with the government, but of course there was no response. Um, and the, the wording went through as it did and, and now it's been sorted. And I think I don't think they've been losing a lot of sleep over it over the intervening years, but uh, it's one thing that they one less worry for them. Put it that yeah, way. well, yeah, no, I'm sure they're relieved. Uh, before we leave the topic, actually, I might I, can I just mention severance because that gets talked about in Lex Law. Um, it, it it isn't how their case is eventually decided, um, but severance has always been a sort of a, a potential solution to these difficulties of the unenforceability of retainers. Um, but it's a potential solution that hasn't worked because in the cost wars, uh, the court said with some enthusiasm, no, it doesn't work. Um, but Newey in Lex Law doesn't decide on the grounds of severance and says we don't need to, um, but does speak as if severance would have actually been a pretty good solution if they weren't able to solve it any other way. I think it's a bit different though, because, or is it a bit different? I'm not sure if it would have been a solution to the, the cost wars on CFAs. I'm, we all argued it <laughs> till the cows come home. I don't think anyone ever succeeded. No, I don't think they did. No, I don't, I don't think any of us did. But here we have a, a, a strongly purposive court. So um, that's- uh, Exactly. The, 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 the purpose of, of DBAs is apparently rather different to that of CFAs. Uh, which, of course, is, is partly a function of who's bringing the challenges. Exactly. Um, um, right, well, moving on then to um, opt-in group litigation. Um, what can you tell us about that? Uh, the decision isn't that recent, but it's still a reasonably recent decision. Um, Andrew, what do you got to say about that? Well, um, the answer 
is that the, uh, opt-in group litigation is a new beast. Um, it's very different to anything that we've ever been used to. And therefore, the cost problems it's going to throw up are going to be very different to anything we've ever become used to. Um, this is about American-style class actions um, in which claims are brought up on, on, effectively on behalf of an entire class of people disadvantaged by unfair competition or something of that sort, people who've paid too much for a mobile phone, people who've too, paid too much for a truck, something of that sort. Um, and they are going uh, to proceed in a completely novel way in the, in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Uh, and they have to be funded, therefore, and regulated in a particular, in a completely different way. Seems to me there are going to be two very big areas that are going to cause conflict and cause the need for cost lawyers to get involved. One is that there is an inevitable conflict between the position of the litigation funders, because these things have to be funded by litigation funders because there aren't any clients in the conventional way, um, between their interests and the interests of the class of injured people who are going to get the damages. So the, the divvying up is going um, to be a very difficult and an important question. Um, the other area that's going to be very difficult um, is the question of what do you do about costs managing these cases? Because you haven't got clients doing anything about that cost managing. And the Competition Appeal Tribunal isn't particularly familiar with costs budgeting, cost management, or anything of that sort. They don't, it's not something um, they've had to deal with. Um, as I said a little while ago, these are hugely valuable claims, many, many millions. The truck, the truck claim is, is worth, the truck's claims are potentially worth billions. Um, and therefore, it's worth people throwing huge amounts of money at all of this. Um, there is a great deal of scope for argument. Um, the Supreme Court, the recent Supreme Court decision didn't really deal with the cost issues at all because the appeal to the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court was only in relation to issues about the quantification of loss and how whether that could in reality be done. Um, but in truth, one of the arguments that is going to be advanced in many of these cases as to why this is a case that isn't suitable to be dealt with under this opt um, opt out. Uh, class action approach uh, is going to be relate to the way that the costs and funding is structured. Andy, you, you've given Colin a thought to this. Well, only in uh, only an outline because you know we've been hanging on for this effectively for five years. You know, um, which is uh, I think when the when the first Mastercard certification hearings took place. Um, and it's just because we're interested, because it's it's one of those very rare occasions, as Andrew's already pointed out, where the costs are completely detached from clients, um, you know, rather in the way that individual instructions are completely attached from clients, because um, because they are. Now, you know, that's okay. we just get used to that. That's what legislation set up. That, that is the system. That's how it works. But <clears throat> one would have thought that the court ordinarily would want to give even more consideration to cost management than they would in a normal large case because you know I think 
large traditional pieces of group litigation, even though the aggregate value of damages might exceed 10 million or so on and so forth, are still ripe for some form of cost management because there's a there's a there's a there's a realization that it's so easy for um, for, for, for cost to get out of whack in uh, in those sorts of cases. So why not these? And I think Andrew's alighted on the the problem that we face, which is in a way, experience and appetite, um, which is the tribunals are not used to working that way. Um, they have, they've always had jurisdiction to deal with costs themselves or palm it off to, um, uh, palm it off to Supreme Court Costs Office. Um, I don't know what the stats are as to how much they retain and how much they pass over, but nevertheless, um, when they do keep it, rather similar to the way some arbitrators approach costs, it's a, it's a much more high level discussion and um, it, it doesn't go into the sort of detail, um, anything like the sort of detail that it does within litigation. Um, and there is no experience there of, um, uh, of cost budgeting. Um, so in order to protect the interests of, uh, the, you know, the potential competing interests of people that are even supposed to be on the same side, um, it would seem to me that these uh, these cases would lend themselves to some form of cost budgeting. But who would do it? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know whether they would um, whether the tribunal would bring in specialists as a, a, a specialist to do it. Um, the courts sometimes do that, but then of course they've got a structure of having masters that can deal with um, cost budgeting if needs be, and occasional expertise brought in uh, by way of assessors from the cost office. So I suppose that's there's potential for that, um, and I, I just think that it's we don't know as much about it because as how that might work out because it was never really dealt with at first instance and it wasn't the subject of any appeal. So therefore, although it it it, it struck me as being a bit odd that um, the defendants hadn't put in a cost estimate or a cost budget, so there was no way of for the court to assess whether the the adverse cost provision in the litigation funding model was enough. I think they just had 10 million. Now that seemed to me to be very low indeed, um, but it, it, it is what it is. Um, and of course, at that point, the prospective defendants had um, much bigger fish to fry. They were really bed in the house on the, uh, on the damages quantification problems uh, rather than these sort of side issues. They'd rather the whole thing went. Um, so I do get the impression that um, perhaps unlike a discussion with DPAs, that there are a number of potential actions um, building up behind the door, waiting for this certification to take place. And that was certainly the impression I had. I was uh, kindly invited by somebody to attend a, a virtual conference of the great and the good on collective and class actions uh, a couple of months ago. And I got the distinct impression that they were waiting for the, uh, that this was gonna light the blue touch paper. I don't want to spring this on you unfairly, Andrew, but I don't know if the regulations permit, um, or the rules rather, permit um, the tribunal to bring in uh, a cost judge as an assessor, but that would seem to be a practical solution which would help enormously on the quantification of, of budgets. I, I imagine the rules, even if they don't expressly provide for it, they can be. They, I mean, they can. They can make someone a deputy judge of the of the of the CAT or something, can't they? Um, probably. 
They, you know, there's usually there's usually a procedural way around these things. Um, yeah. It's but it's the question of who's going to grasp as as Andy effectively said, where's the appetite? Who is who is going to be? These are such big, difficult cases to case manage. But who's going to grasp the nettle? It's the usual costs difficulty um, that we you know that that costs his tail end, Charlie. Everyone worries about everything else. Uh, direction of travel without realizing um, that that actually um, uh, this very large scale litigation very often becomes about the costs and not a great deal else. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. An insight which you and I had some some years ago and uh, is, is now becoming more widespread. Put it that way. Right. Right. Uh, there was a wonderful quote in the just before I retired um, from someone in the Court of Appeal saying. Um, specialist cost council brackets, and I believe there are such things. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I think yeah, Andy, you're quite right. This is watch this space for quite a lot more. Um, there are some. Uh, we've had a quick look at the legal press. There's a um, a collective action over mobile phone chips. Um, there's a collection a collective action against Facebook for data protection. There's a, an action against Vauxhall for emissions worth apparently up to 20,000 ahead in, in the best cases, um, which is a bit better than the, I think it's 30 quid in the um, phone chip litigation. I can't we're all going to get from MasterCard. It's something similar, I think, uh, if it's successful, um, which reminds me, I must, I must remember to opt in. Because if you're not <laughs> resident in you the UK, you're already in, you? No, no, you have to opt in if you're resident abroad. <laughs> so it's another special Brexit rule. Um, moving on then, just a, a quick mention of uh, Heathfield International and Axiom Stone London, Andrew. Oh, right. Another, another, um, another case in which the significance isn't so much what's actually decided as to what's sort of mentioned on the way to deciding it. Um, this is a, a decision... Um, of his honour judge Simon Barker sitting in Birmingham uh, in the um, 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 in the in the business business and property courts, um, and he's faced with a useless uh, party that's failing to comply with cost budgeting, um, and um, therefore, in principle, under CPR three point thirteen and CPR CPR three point fourteen entitled to a budget that consists solely of the court fees. Uh, but he says, um, I think my discretion is in fact much wider than that. I don't think it is a binary choice. I think why would be entitled to say uh, that the just outcome would be uh, partial relief from sanction. Um, that it is that, that, that actually I can say that certain phases we should get nothing, but for other phases, it can be effectively a conditional order saying that if you do X and Y, put in a competent budget right now to cover trial and trial prep, uh, I can allow a certain level of, of costs for that. Um, he then turned around and says, but this particular litigant is so spectacularly useless, I'm not going to do it. Um, so this is obiter, and so it isn't going to be binding on anybody. Um, but I think it's going to be quite attractive to quite a lot of judges. Because I have to be truthful and say, I think judges do find this quite uncomfortable. The thing of saying that it's an absolute binary choice between people either 
uh, either as it were accepting people failing to obey the rules or imposing a very draconian penalty and if they could take a middle way and penalize them a bit but not totally uh, i think that's something that could well catch on must be right mustn't it and i mean the logic of the um, the judgment on that is is impeccable yeah absolutely yeah, just not yeah, no i agree anyway not a great deal to say about that case um so let's move on to the, the, the final topic we were going to talk about, which is um, the year of lockdown. This is a, a sequel um, to a discussion we had with the senior cost judge just before Christmas in our last, um, it's the last name, one of our recent cost chat between friends, um, in which he was describing how, what it had been like to be in the cost office and effectively running the cost office um, under these extremely difficult circumstances and how they've innovated and dealt with, with the problem. Um, but let's switch now to the view of the practitioner, um, both of you um, as practitioners in, in this respect. What would, you, what would you say your year has been like, Andrew? It's all worked a lot better than we would have expected. I think, you know, and, you know, and credit to the, and credit, in fact, to, to, to particularly to the cost judiciary, because they've, they've coped well with the tech. And, and it, this is an area um, in which technology really, really matters. Um, it's to their credit that they moved to Teams rather than Skype for Business, which is a good platform. I'm slightly troubled by the new platform called CVP, uh, which is the court, um, uh, the court dedicated video platform. I've had one hearing on that, not in, not in, not in the cost office, but in, a, um, but in a district registry. And that was not as satisfactory. It's not terrible. It's not terrible, it's, but it's not quite as good at teams, as Teams, but I think it's felt to be even more secure than Teams. And so I think that's the route the courts are, are, are now going down. Um, I think what's so interesting, looking back on the last year, is if we'd had this conversation two or three weeks in, we would have been absolutely clear that this was a blip and normal service would resume very shortly. And I don't think for lots of, he for lots of hearings it's ever going to resume. I think lots of hearings are going to continue to be virtual and remote. Uh, lots of interlocutory work can be done perfectly efficiently um, um, as a remote hearing. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't, aren't going to therefore go back to interlocutory stuff happening, happening in person at all. What about you, Andy? Yeah, I, I, um, I think that, well, just before we move on to me, I'd like to Andrew, ask Andrew a question more about his sort of like general working arrangements, which is you mentioned mm. earlier how Jeremy would, you know, popped into your uh, office in chambers one day and said, you know, I'm having a bit of trouble with this, you know, can you help me? And uh, look what happened. I mean, do, how can that sort of thing, does that, is that sort of communication between, between you in, in, in chambers, is that still operating as it might have done before in terms of the you know, the, the water cooler chat, as the Americans call it. No, no, it doesn't work nearly as well, Andy. You're absolutely right to say this. Uh, when, when we first started a year ago, we, were, we tried to use Teams, the chat function within Teams, as a means of creating a virtual version of this. Yeah. So people would say, oh, that sounds like happened at court, and, you know, and this and that, and what do you think? And... Uh, you know how what it's like in organisations. There's a handful of, 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 of 
marvellous people who actually did post and comment on other people's posts. But most of us just got on with the next thing, cursed the judge and moved on to the next problem. Um, rather, you know, and actually it's quite difficult to create a virtual equivalent to chatting around the cattle. Um, and, you know, and yes, we've definitely lost something. And, and if, if people don't come back to chambers, if, if you don't go back to the office, um, that's going to be problematic because particularly for the juniors, they're not going to learn without people to talk to. I was talking to one of our uh, junior tenants and he has now been on his feet for a year and he's done it in an actual court once. He's been in court sort of four, four times a week for a year um, and it's been virtual almost every time. And he'd certainly come, acro come across um, some real difficulties, which actually he would have benefited from having walking into a room with colleagues and talking it through with them. But he didn't feel he could phone up and do so. And we said, you know, do just phone up, you know, just, just pick up the phone and talk to someone. But it's tough. It's tough to do that. No, I, I, I can identify with that. Um, and I think that probably what's helped us is, is um, having, a, uh, having a team that has worked together for uh, a number of years. We've been fortunate in terms of we haven't really had any personnel changes um, for, a few, for about three years now. Uh, one retirement recently, that's about it. And um, to have to start to form those relationships from scratch if we were to bring in somebody new i think there would be enormous problems with it that are we, we'd find it difficult to get over but i think the fact that we already worked had to find ways to work together because we seldom seem to get involved these days with you know sort of one person jobs as it were and that's been that's been our, our way for a while translating that to the virtual environment has actually been quite effective so we so we have used teams quite extensively and we have if you like small teams within teams as it were who, who do have video conferencing on a virtually a sort of a daily basis and we're small enough with sort of 14 or 15 people to have a couple of structured teams calls a week at least one of which where we try and say we're not allowed to talk about work uh, <laughs> um, so so i mean we we, we do I actually do get tapped up by um, colleagues to say, can I just run something past you using the, using the chat function? But I think because we've got a form of hierarchical structure, not, you know, not as flat as, you know, flattish, but not as flat as the barristers chambers, means that there's a, there's a, there's a chain of command that lends itself to that sort of communication anyway, yeah. um, which there isn't when it's just peer to peer necessarily. Um, but I mean, I, I completely agree with you, and this is sort of you know areas we covered with Andrew Gordon Saker, that um, the cost courts in particular have coped surprisingly well, um, and and I can't see it, I can't see it returning to what it was. Um, I think the split between interim hearings and uh, substantive hearings is is probably right. There'll be more of a return to face-to-face -face in, um, in in full assessments as, than there is in um, <clears throat> than there is in um, uh, interim hearings, directions, appointments, relief from sanctions hearings, and so on and so forth. And maybe I hazard to guess we don't so we don't do many, but um, it would make given that the costs 
um, of doing it, the cost penalties and getting it wrong are quite extensive. If you wanted a hearing following on from a provisional assessment, a lot cheaper to do that uh, on a remote basis, I would have thought as well. And that might encourage a little bit more of that um, when, uh, when the time comes. Um, biggest change, well, the, the forcing down the line of the adoption of Excel for, for, for assessments has been a big move uh, and that, that, that's very welcome, that's helped. Um, the final frontier seems to me to be document management. You know, I think we've got to become all as smart with, you know, Acrobat DC Pro or what have you as we were, as we as we had to be with Word, you know, back in the day when that was the, you know, that was the uh, the application that meant that, that uh, people could um, communicate electronically. Um, and um, I actually, on balance, despite the fact that it's a massive amount of front loading, I actually prefer the bundle being before the court, well prepared bookmarked before a hearing because it's the only way you could do it electronically um, as, as an alternative to leafing through dusty lever arch files and uh, breaking your fingers on uh, breaking your fingernails on uh, on, on those uh, lever arches that never work um, that that I think is that I think should stay I'm not sure whether you know apart from the social aspect of it I'm not sure what people would necessarily be gagging to get back into court. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, Andy. I mean, what, what strikes me is, and, and what you said about the, the close-knit team is very important, because what strikes me with, particularly with remote negotiations, remote roundtable meetings, remote mediations, is if you're negotiating with people you know already, they yeah. work very well. If it's new people you don't know, you don't have an existing relationship with them, then building a relationship remotely is very tough. Yeah. Um, and I think it's I think it's the same with judges. If you know the judge, then again, it's 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 actually quite helpful. And that, so therefore, the cost office is you know is a good place to be practicing. The Queen's Bench Division is a harder place to be practicing um, because you do you know you know you've got to, you've got to, it's. Um, Dealing, dealing with the tech is dealing with tech is difficult. There's endless new pitfalls that can happen with the tech, and as you were saying, with document management. Um, and indeed, we demonstrated one a little bit earlier. Um, we set this up for, for four o'clock on a on a March afternoon. Um, the sun came shining through for the first time in March, straight into my eyes, into into my virtual background when we were doing the first twenty minutes of this of this chat, um, and. Um, there was a problem that over the winter has not happened to me once before previously. That the sun, that, that there's actually been strong enough sun to that you know that 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 my uh, visuals are being are being mucked around because there's a whole load of technological stuff that we have got to be adept at as so that you don't even notice it and we can get on with the advocacy. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing that strikes me is advocacy has to change and more for problem for the barristers than for cost lawyers. But the sort of traditional barristers advocacy can be very unacceptable. If you've got someone who's a bit hectoring and a bit pompous and that person is now not at the other side of the court, but on the judge's desk, 
that's pretty unacceptable, isn't it? And lots of it, and lots of it. So the, the, the approach to equity has to change. And that's been really interesting. Yeah. How have you found it with um, uh, getting your um, get, getting yourself tugged from behind by instructing solicitors? Do, do you work that... With, with a sort of uh, with a sort of WhatsApp group going along along the side of uh, yeah another uh, or, or yeah or or, te or Teams messenger you know another 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 platform with a with a chat with a chat function open open in it but of course because that's easy for the solicitor they can be sending comments all the time whereas when they actually have to write something down and pass it forward to you an editing function meant they'd only actually pass the message if it really, really needed to get through. The danger is that you're watching a constant um, uh, a constant flow of, of comments, only some of which are actually useful, but it's distracting you from what your opponent or the judges say. Exactly. Yeah. There's only so message much for solicitors there, I think. Only so many. Sort of, you know, I can't believe he's swallowing this sort of comments that you can... <laughs> 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 Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's when you're getting emojis in. That's when you've got to be a bit troubled. When you get, you know, you're getting, you know, you've got champagne bottle emojis coming into the chat. You know, you need, you need to, you know, you need to so, bring uh, a stop to that when you're wrong thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and how about um, uh, there was one thing I, I noticed. Uh, Deborah, who's helping us prepare for this, helpfully um, sent us that uh, Baker and McKenzie report, and they suggested there might be some sort of hybrid arrangements would become quite popular, whereas where you wouldn't need you, you, the, the 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 advocates might be in court uh, and maybe one other people, but other people that were just going to be there to be taking notes or, or 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 sitting in the background might might actually attend virtually. I wonder whether that might uh, whether that might catch on. I'm not sure, myself. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I I think one of the interesting issues is going to be how many people are needed for a court hearing. If you were talking about the the, the document manipulation, um, I'm not sure one doesn't need a you know a sort of courtroom a courtroom assistant to be manipulating the documents, manipulating the virtual bundle, and making sure that the virtual documents are in the right in the right place. Yes. Um, uh, and both on both on big digital assessments and indeed when coming to assess the cost of big trials. Yeah, I and mean, I think there's a limit to. I mean, I think there's a threshold that people should be able to get over themselves. I mean, I'm still a bit staggered that um, people giving down the street press conferences can't click the slide onto the next one. Um, and there's, there's, there must be lots of court equivalents of, of those, but I certainly, I definitely found that um, uh, when I did a, a, an assessment recently, um, I felt that I would have felt floundering if I hadn't had um, somebody helping me from my firm whose job was purely to make sure they were keeping track of decisions and results and feeding them into the spreadsheet so that I didn't have to do all that at the same time. Um, and, and, and yet, probably wouldn't have done that if I'd have been in person, probably, or certainly not in the old days. If, we, if we're talking about putting notes on, um, uh, you know, notes on bills and adding it up later, there again, you know, five minutes after the end of the hearing, we were able to turn around to the client and say, this is, what, this is, this is how it's going. Um, so, you know, it's actually better uh, as well as being, you know, it's, it's more costly at one end, but, um, but slightly cheaper at the other. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I think that's def I think that definitely is a, is a, is a very real change. 
The, I mean, the Baker and McKenzie um, report also suggested that people weren't keen on um, mediation online. I suspect for the reasons that Andrew's just given, the, the sort of the water cooler effect. Um, although interestingly, um, not many people who they surveyed had participated in an online mediation and those who had were relatively satisfied with the way it had gone. I, I found that an interesting conflict because uh, certainly intuitively, I would have thought exactly what you've just said, it will be difficult to form those relationships that enable one to get across the difficult points of a mediation. I've done two. Um, have you done mediations in virtually, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the more structured it is, the better it works remotely. So, so a structured mediation with breakout rooms and moving people from room to room, of course, can can, can work quite well. Um, a less structured environment can be can be difficult remotely. Yes, yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that. I think ours technologically worked quite well. The breakout room idea, the the, the mediator moving between two rooms. The, the, I've always thought one of the attractions, perhaps it says more about my personality than others, but one of the attractions of uh, mediation is that you cut down on the amount of face time you have with your opponent. <laughs> you, spend, <laughs> you spend much of the time in your own room um, and, and not so often, not so much on, uh, on uh, uh, open sessions. Um, but certainly I found that, that that side of things worked well. Maybe I think there's some force in the idea that um, when you're all trapped in the same four physical walls together, um, there's a pressure on getting something done. You wear yourself down. And when yeah. all you need to do is click and you're out of there, <laughs> you know, you're controlling no, your own environment. You know, it, it, you can absolutely comfortable and there can be drift. Yeah. You come to chambers to make a deal. You come to the meeting to make a deal. And if you don't physically come to the deal, then there isn't the same incentive to close, to, to, you know, to, to actually reach a reach a compromise, reach an agreement. Yeah. That's very interesting. I, um, I, must, I, I mean, they, they work better. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no. I was just going to wrap up, really. So, what were you going to say? Uh, what I was going to say is, I found that, that that as with court hearings, they worked a lot better than expected. It doesn't mean, you know, I think there are. Um, there are advantages to doing it in person, but I suspect that a lot of um, ADR of all sorts is going to remain remote. I think I think we're not going to go back to always meeting meeting in person to do this. Well, um, that'll be good for the environment. Um, hmm? I, I, I must say, I find it quite reassuring that things have gone really much better than I would have expected um, during this period of lockdown, and that seems to be certainly in the field of costs, um, the, the universal view. I think perhaps in some other courts, matters have struggled a bit more, but um, the costs office has done extraordinarily well, and particularly given that they are very, very document heavy, in potentially at least, um, as a court, and they seem to have coped very well with it, which is, which is very nice to hear. And I, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure Andrew Gordon Sake will be watching this um, with avid interest, and uh, will be pleased to know that uh, as a participant, as opposed to a person sitting behind the, the, the desk. Um, you, you, you would agree with that. 
Well, thank you again very much. I hope this um, chat has been interesting to all of those who are viewing. Um, the next one we haven't yet scheduled, but uh, we look forward to it. I look forward to it. And um, in the meantime, keep safe, everyone. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, time. Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you all.